0: Welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each week, we invite our listeners to take ten and to get an update on economics, markets, and other topics of interest for institutional investors. Each podcast, I'm joined by QIC's chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Hi, Matthew.
1: Oh, hi, Alison. And uh, look, just before we start, Alison, I must give a trigger warning for this week's podcast. Actually, going to be a bit heavy on the statistics, but each one of those numbers paints a story. So, so bear with us.
0: All right, all right. Because of this, this, of course, will be uh, the second part of our two-part series. We did the US last week and focusing on China this week, the diverging super economies. But before we kick off on all of that, I would be remiss to note that obviously the Reserve Bank is due to make its announcement soon. Are we on hold or are we going for another hike, Matthew?
1: Yes, for well, tomorrow they're going to be on hold, no doubt about right. it. No sitting on the fence.
0: Pleased to hear it. Pleased to hear it. All right, well, we'll dive into China. And, you know, as we talked about last week, the resilience in the US has been quite remarkable and I think probably a lot more than most people expected, it, certainly from my perspective. But- The real contrasting with what we're seeing in China with just a continual series of soft economic releases, whether it's employment, uh, GDP growth, consumption, sort of the list goes on and then you also overlay that with some other things like the corporate failures. You know, we've had Evergrande, Country Garden, you know, both in the property sector, of course, which has been in the media quite a lot. But it'd be really great to get a snapshot from you, with a lot, potentially with a lot of statistics, uh, as to where the Chinese economy is at.
1: Yes, well, Alison, it's weak and deteriorating, uh, not to put okay. a finer point on it. Look, everywhere you look in that economy, the data show decline. Of course, the biggest risk factor, which you alluded to there, of course, is the property market. And, you know, look at property sales and property starts. They're plumbing new lows. And of course, that's spilling over to the consumer. Remember, Alison, in in China, the household sector holds uh, 80% of its wealth in in property. So bad news for the property is bad news for the consumer. And of course, consumer spending we've seen slow to uh, just around 2.5%. That's a recessionary rate of growth for China, by the way. And, you know, authorities have been really reluctant to roll out their usual playbook Of providing support to the property market and also provide infrastructure spending during times of slowdown like we're currently experiencing and so as a consequence of that investment spending which is sort of tied to those two things has also slowed and to top it all off as global trade is slowing Uh, China exports are also taking a hit.
0: Look, certainly a lot of areas to watch in the economy. But in line with that, there's been a lot of discussions and expectation that the Chinese government will come out and provide more stimulus. And I guess in some senses it has. There has been a a raft of measures, but a lot of them have been quite small. So things like various interbank short-term and medium term lending Mm -hmm. rates have been cut. They cut the the stamp duty on share purchases uh, last week and some changes to mortgage policy setting for Mm first-time owners, all really trying to sort of get that stimulus and that sort of resumption of growth, but they appear to me to be largely treating the symptoms rather than potentially the cause. I'd be curious to see what you think about that. But perhaps as a first point of call, you alluded to sort of that traditional playbook that they did used to go to, which was a lot of fiscal stimulus. Let's get out and put 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 out some big checks and you know a lot of infrastructure build, a lot of property build, all those sorts of things to stimulate the economy. And that isn't happening now. And one potential reason could be the you know the amount of debt that's in the economy um, to allow them to do that. So just a question is how indebted is China and how how could you put that in comparison to perhaps some other
1: countries? Yes, well, just before I answer that question, I really like your characterisation there of treating the symptoms rather than the cause. And they're pretty much those policies they have rolled out are really Band-Aid efforts. They're, they're not the big bazooka. And you're also you know, getting to the cause. And that cause really, which is more systemic, is the level of indebtedness. So in answer to your question, and it's a bit of a tricky question in the case of China about how big the debt is, because, you know, like, can you uh, believe Chinese data? Nonetheless, according to the Bank of International Settlements data, its total debt currently is about an eye-watering 300% of its GDP. Now, yes, while that sounds enormous, doesn't it, of course, but many who are listening in might be surprised that they're not alone in carrying such an eye-watering level of debt. For example, the US, the Euro area, the UK, they've all got debt to GDP ratios about 250%, not that far below China. And here in Australia, we're only a little better off with a debt level of about 225% of GDP. But all of that sort of pales in comparison to Japan, which uh, has a debt ratio of about 400% of GDP. Now, China's debt ratio. Ratio is not yet at the stratospheric level of Japan, but it's been increasing rapidly, particularly uh, since COVID.
0: Matthew, you referred to Japan in your previous answer, and I actually wanted to raise that with you as well. I think to me, it's potentially an interesting point of comparison. Japan had a tremendous boom um, in its economy back in the 80s, and then through a whole lot of reasons, including a lot of debt, which we've just talked about, really has had a couple of lost decades since, and we're only just starting to see some emergence of uh, of increased growth in Japan now. Is China at the risk of that when we think about its consumer, certainly has a lot of savings, but hasn't really sort of made that transition that we've seen in other economies that have shifted from emerging markets to developed markets to be the backbone and the engine of growth? And if we've got a lot of debt and we can't do the fiscal stimulus Where are we left at? Are we going to see China becoming sort of the next Japan with lost decades of growth?
1: Yeah, so it's a really interesting uh, comparison, as you you point out. It's a a very apt analogy, the one with Japan and one that – You put me onto, and we spoke about this uh, a little while ago now, and so I've been looking into it, and when you think about what happened in Japan, you know, it was really uh, property speculation and overinvestment in property that played a large role in the malaise in which Japan found itself in the end of the 1980s. You know, that disorderly collapse in the Japanese property market really killed off the consumer uh, that you're alluding to, and that was already in a developed economy, Uh, and you know the characteristic of the Japanese consumer or the household there was its wealth was overwhelmingly held in property, but also, at the time, the corporate sector, uh, which had leaned into property development, had also uh, increased its debt as it as a debt funded that um, move into property development. Now, leading into their property develop their property bubble, I should say, the Japanese corporate debt level had increased dramatically from under 100% of GDP at the start of the 1980s to almost 150% at the end of the 1990s at the height of the bubble. And just before Uh, That bubble burst. So, when Japanese uh, property prices collapsed, Ellison, Japanese businesses and the household sector were really heavily exposed and indebted. So, Japanese authorities attempted to stimulate their way out of the recession, and they found that was to no avail because businesses wouldn't invest and consumers wouldn't spend as they were unwinding debt. The government debt level therefore increased from what was a modest 65% of GDP back in 1990 to 165% of GDP by 2010. And that's kept going, be now a whopping 230% of GDP and over half of that in a huge 400% debt to GDP ratio.
0: Wow. So look, there does sound some eerie similarities there. So compare that directly to China, if you could, for me. I know it's a bit stat heavy, but I think it's really interesting to think about this as a potential outcome.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose the comparisons, the similarities, you know, if you look at the Chinese corporate debt and what we've seen that do over, just say if we go just before the GFC, it's gone from 90% of GDP to a level of 130% of GDP now so that building in, in in corporate debt a lot of it to do with you know property development is similar to to China uh, household debt also climbed sharply in, in China from 20% of GDP to around 60% today and for uh, as you say, a developing economy, that's a fairly high level of debt for the household sector to carry. And of course, that is also related to the property sector. And government debt has also risen from also what was a modest 35% of GDP to 70% of GDP. That's not a high level in comparison to many other developed economies, but for um, developing economies, again, it's getting high. Now, if the Chinese allow were to allow a disorderly collapse of the property market, a large Japan, With the economy so exposed to the property sector, they may find, like Japan, that any amount of fiscal stimulus does little to really arrest the slide that would occur in the economy. And they could find their debt burden if they did attempt that stimulus to accelerate to uh, you know, Japan's level of 400% of GDP and end up spending more than a decade, then trying to unwind the debt overhang. Hence, Chinese authorities, I think, are trying to unwind the property overhang currently in an orderly manner. So, Alison, no playbook, uh, no uh, stimulus to property, you no know, stimulus to infrastructure. And as a consequence, I think they'll suffer a reduced economic growth rate in the process, but not a deep recession and not a lost decade of growth.
0: Yeah, very interesting and really challenging for them because in a contrasting perspective, you know, having that property sector unwind so slowly does create sort of that drag for a very long period though. So, you know, either way, it's a challenge for them. Matthew, just wanted to bring us back home, really. China is clearly a very important trading partner for the Australian economy. You know, so many of our sectors are heavily reliant on China, you know, of course, resources, but other things like education, for example, are very important, not to mention the Australian Australian dollar, which is obviously very heavily impacted by the outlook for China. So, with this sort of, I guess, as you say, south and heading south analogy at the, at the start of the podcast, what do you see the impact of this on Australia being?
1: Yeah, well, as you say, given our exposure to China uh, as a trading partner, a disorderly collapse in the China's property market would be absolutely disastrous, I think, for our economy. We absolutely need China to solve its property market problems in an orderly fashion. Now, this, unfortunately, I think will mean that Uh, China economic growth, as we just discussed, will be lower than it may well have been had the problem been addressed earlier. You know, you look at what China's authorities have been doing over the last decade, they've been progressively ratcheting down their growth targets from 8% a decade ago to 5%. Currently, Um, that's been largely in response to population ageing. And as they've been attempting to move away from that investment and export-led growth model. Now, though, they have to factor in the need to address the property market and debt overhangs. And I think you'll see further downgrades in uh, Chinese government growth targets. Now, of course, slower China growth will lead to a fall in demand for our resource exports in particular. And what that's going to do, Alison, is going to absolutely increase the imperative on us to transition A, to other sources of exports, and B, to other destinations for those exports other than China.
0: Indeed. Well, Matthew, really interesting discussion this morning. Thank you for joining me today and also thanks to our listeners. I do also want to wish you, Matthew, a very happy break. You're heading off overseas for a couple of weeks on a well-deserved rest. So I'll have some guest co-hosts over the next couple of weeks and uh, Beverly Morris from our Liquid Markets group will be joining me next week. But Matthew, enjoy your break and thanks to our listeners for taking 10.